Hey there, this is Kat from We Rise, and most of you probably don't know that I was trained at KPFA's First Voice Apprenticeship Program, this incredible community-based intergenerational learning training program. Every week on Friday, we air a show called Full Circle, and if you've listened to some of our past shows, you'll hear that we've rebroadcast several of my shows and other First Voice producers' shows on Full Circle. And on Friday, November 2nd, Current First Voice producers Mari and Sharon did a show about the upcoming election and their research and guests are so timely that we wanted to share them with you so that you can be as informed of voters as possible. Please know that this will be pretty specific to the San Francisco Bay Area and California voting, but we definitely encourage all of you to get out the vote. And if you want to know more about electoral justice, I highly recommend the podcast How to Survive the End of the World and their recent show Elections in End Times hashtag Black November. So without further ado, please enjoy Full Circle. Full Circle, yes we rotate 360 degrees High high 360 degrees High high 306 306 360 degrees High Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. This show is written, produced, and broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the East Bay Area. On tonight's show, we'll talk about protecting our vote and raising our voices, even between elections, and how we can improve our electoral process so that it better serves the... You know, we the people. And we'll talk about money in politics and ways that voters can change how that works, again, to serve we the people. And also we'll talk about the impact of housing, a major Bay Area crisis on Tuesday's midterm elections. All that tonight on Full Circle. We are your hosts, Mari Nakagawa and Sharon Peterson. Keep Keep it it locked. locked. Good evening again. Welcome to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley and online worldwide on kpfa.org. We're your hosts, Mari Nakagawa and Sharon Peterson. So it seems like every blasted day we hear about yet one more scheme to prevent our vote from counting or to keep us from voting entirely. So how can we make democracy better, both for California and nationwide? Our next guest has some ideas on how we can do exactly that. Tonight we welcome Daniel Newman. Daniel is the president and co-founder of MapLite. We'll talk about bringing democracy to our ballot boxes. And of course, we'll explore ways that voters can get involved to make our elections work more fairly. Welcome to Full Circle, Daniel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, let's touch on... What should we focus on in the midterms and beyond as voters? Well, as a voter, 
Of course, you want to figure out which candidates and ballot measures matches your interests. We have a website my organization, uh, MapLite, and the League of Women Voters of California publishes called votersedge.org. And you go to that website, you type in your street address, it has everyone on your ballot, even the local office holders, even the local ballot measures, and it gives you meaningful information about them so you can decide for yourself how to vote. Are there any other actions that voters can take to affect elections, to raise their voices? Well, absolutely. I think there's all sorts of ways, you know, to help get out the vote. You can call people in your district and elsewhere in the country. I think one of the key trends here is to think about what happens after the election and how do we tip the balance in the country going more toward what regular people need instead of what the ultra-rich people need. So we're going to take a little bit of a detour. We're going to change it up a little. Please tell us a bit about MapLite and the campaigns MapLite is working on. So MapLite is a nonpartisan group that exposes money's influence on politics. So we do investigative reporting to show how our political system, which is so dominated in money, how does that translate into having an effect on you, a voter. So, for example, in California some years ago, there was a bill in the California legislature to put more fresh fruit in school breakfast, which is a pretty good idea for everybody except processed food companies because they don't make money from fresh fruit. They make money from canned and processed fruit. And so that industry had the word fresh in this bill changed to nutritious right before the bill got passed. So money that was going to put more fresh fruit in school breakfast put canned fruit in sugar syrup for these kids. And that's how our country is working, that our kids are eating canned fruit in sugar syrup just so that food companies make more money. And the fact that candidates, elected officials, have to depend on food industry donations and donations from every other wealthy industry is the reason that we're in the mess we're in. And there are also like individual investors, uh, mega donors, such as the Koch brothers. What is their game? So this, this great book that came out recently called Democracy in Chains details the secret means and the secret goals of right wing, I think is not the right phrase. It's really extreme libertarianism. And so you hear about the Koch brothers and the Koch networks, but it's really not one person. It's a whole uh, group of people who would like government to be the back the way it was in the feudal times where you have a few really rich people, the lords of the manor, and everybody else is serfs. There's no government to protect people. There's no public education. And this is... Um, this this book, Democracy in Chains, really reveals that plan. And I think that all we who stand for a real democracy and a government that works for everybody and not just a few rich people really need to change the system so that candidates can run for office and win without special interest money. So we have things like anti-gerrymandering laws and these things which make it so individual voters have more voice. So the name of the book is Democracy in Chains? Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. And listeners, we will have links to every organization that's mentioned tonight and one to this book as well. So what can be done about the corrosive, corruptive effect of money on our elections? The secret is clean elections or public funding of elections is really the linchpin here. This is the linchpin that gives corporate interest control over government now. And it's the linchpin if you switch it, then the people have control over government. And here's why it works. If you want to run for office... One of the first questions people will ask you is not like, what are your ideas? What's your community support? They'll ask you, how much money can you raise? How much money can you raise? Like, what does that really have to do with whether you're a good leader and you're representing your community? And so in Berkeley, for example, I helped pass a law two years ago 
that is uh, clean elections law. So if you run for office in Berkeley and you agree, I'm not going to take any donations above $50, then every dollar you raise is matched six to one by a city fund. And so what that means is you're not calling people on the phone asking for $250 checks. You're going door to door. You're having grassroots events. Give me $10, $20, and that money is matched enough that when you are elected, all your money comes from small donors and it's from public funds. So you don't have any favors to pay back. You're not accountable to anybody you shouldn't be accountable to. And that principle, that fair elections principle, is in place in New York City and Seattle with an innovative program called Democracy Vouchers as well. How did you persuade the city of Berkeley to participate? So this is a ballot measure. So we got the city council. Uh, we persuaded them for uh, years, and they eventually put it on the ballot. And overwhelmingly, 65% of people in Berkeley voted for this because people in Berkeley, like people elsewhere, see that the corruption of our system by big money is dominant in the country. And so we need to change the system to make the money come from the people instead of from the big corporations. So it was the voters who did it. And in Seattle, too, this innovative program called Democracy, Democracy vouchers. So get this. So every person in Seattle gets in the mail $100 in democracy vouchers. And this is coupons that you can give to the city council candidates and the mayor candidates that you like. So if there's someone from your community and they're running for office, you can give them a $25, $100 coupon. And that is good for campaign money, which comes from a government fund. And so you have a candidate, Teresa Mosqueda, who is now the first renter, the only renter on the Seattle City Council. And she has a long history of working for health care, for children, for people of color. And she didn't have connections to big money, even though she's a community leader. And with democracy vouchers, she went door to door, collected democracy vouchers of people who agreed with her, and then she had the resources she needs to get elected. That's amazing. That is amazing. And it shows the importance of footwork, too. It does. And, you know, many people think it seems so far-fetched from where we are as a country in some ways to have that be the norm. But you have Arizona has a similar system to this. Maine, Connecticut, as I mentioned, New York City. Many people don't know this, but it used to be back over 100 years ago, the ballots weren't printed by the government. You know, we're talking about the long ballots that California's face. They were printed by the political parties. So, you know, the Republican Party or whatever party it was, it would only have that party's candidates on it. And there's no space to write in other candidates. And the ballots actually were on colored paper so people watching there could see which you put in the ballot box. I mean, so there's no voter privacy. There's no real putting the power in the voter. It's the parties that had their control. Now, fortunately, the American states wised up after Australia and the UK did a more fair system. And the government said, we're going to step in. We're going to print these ballots. Sure, it costs us a couple dollars more, but this is what we need to protect our citizens, protect our voters. And it's the same thing with uh, clean money elections that for the government to, to to do that extra step, it protects voters and it makes sure the government works for everybody instead of uh, just for big corporations and really rich people. That is a fascinating bit of history. I had no idea. Colored partisan ballots. Uh, we discussed the mechanics of ranked choice. Very briefly, how does ranked choice voting relate to money in politics? So if you have two main candidates in a race, then you can either you can do better by talking about yourself or you can do better by knocking down the other person. And we've all seen that so many overwhelming number of ads is negative. And uh, that's because these negative ads, they, they work in a narrow way in that they help the candidate that runs the ads, but they're corrosive to the political system as a whole because no matter who gets in office, they're going to be uh, attacked in often fair, unfair ways. Now, with ranked choice voting, we have multiple candidates running. You, you can't knock people down as a very effective 
uh, way to to move yourself up. Because say you have like three or four legitimate, you know, when I say legitimate, I mean candidates that, that seem to have a chance to win, that have real community backing. So if you're candidate A, like you can't really run ads knocking down all three candidates. It just doesn't work. And so you're left with, let's talk about me. You know, what am I going to do as candidate A to make your life better? And why am I the best candidate? You don't need as much money to run ads. It encourages more coalition building, more grassroots. And, and this is not to the extreme. You know, RCV campaigns, voting campaigns, like you still have negative ads. They still raise money. It's one more thing that, that decreases the importance. So one complaint we hear about California elections is that our ballots tend to be huge. Info is hard to find. Words of advice. So one of the great things about California elections and many other uh, states, especially in the West, is the government sends this booklet to you in the mail. All right? If you're a registered voter, you get this booklet and it tells you who's on your ballot and it, it tells um, to some extent what the propositions do and has candidate statements. I mean, so first of all, this in itself is a great thing. Like we did, a, my organization, MapLite, did a project in Illinois. So they don't even, they don't do something like that. We just take it for granted as Californians and you go into the ballot box in Illinois and, and you're seeing who's on the ballot maybe for the first time, right? So so we thought at MapLate, uh, what can we do to take this, that what the, the government is doing, but really make it much more useful to voters and bring into the online era. And so we teamed up as partners with the League of Women Voters of, of California, a great organization. And together we published this website called Voters Edge. So if you go to Voters Edge, which is votersedge.org, there's a million people that are using that site this month to look up information on California elections. And you put in your street address and it, it shows you your whole ballot, even like the local offices that it's really hard to find information on. And it has statements by the candidate and their top priorities. And for some candidates, it even has who's funding them. And for the ballot propositions, you can decide pretty quickly how you want to vote just looking on how the funding lines up on the yes and no side. So you go to votersedge.org and it really cuts through the polluted air of all those negative ads and all those mailers that fill your mailbox. And it's really like uh, just the unbiased information that you need to make up your mind. Well, I know one of the things I use is, who is funding this? And um, if I'm familiar with them, that's part of my decision. If it's a mystery funder, that's definitely a part of my decision. And so is that a good... uh a uh, strategy for making decisions. Oh, absolutely. And on, on ballot measures for uh, the state or local, like we, the voters, like we are the legislature. Like we're we're the ones deciding: do we want this law or not? And these the like any legislation is not always easy to understand. And the endorsements help, but especially the funding helps. I mean, if you have. Uh, real estate developers lining up on the no side on Prop 10, like, do you tend to side with those people or not? That can help you make your choice about Prop 10. And the same goes for, for other propositions as well. You can, uh, you can tell from the funding information on Voter's Edge really where you want to line up. So how can folks plug into MapLite to do a little more than just check off boxes? Yeah, thank you. Well, I tell people, really, join a group that's working on fixing the underpinnings of our democracy. I mean, this mess we're in as a country, like, it didn't happen just from one person getting elected. This is built up over a long time by systems that really encourage big money that privilege big money in our election process. And so we need to unrig the system. So you go to maplight.org, you can sign up. I also recommend you go to Common Cause. California Common Cause is a great group. And then you're part of people who are changing the system. And right now, like in Los Angeles, there's movement to improve their public funding system. In Oakland, California, the Oakland Public Ethics Commission right now is considering, are they going to recommend a clean elections public funding system? Maybe even a democracy vouchers program like is working so well in Seattle. So right now there's opportunity that you can make a huge difference in your city. Thank you. We've been speaking with Daniel Newman, 
Daniel is the president and co-founder of MapLight. This is Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. And a hearty thanks to Daniel for visiting us in the studio this week. And up next, we'll hear from Pedro Hernandez from Fairvote, California. He also visited. But first, some political music to get us all fired up. biggest gun we've got is called the ballot box. So if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. 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 And when they're gone, we'll sing and dance and shout. And bring some new ones in, and we'll start that show again. And if you don't like who's in there, vote them out. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was a new song by Willie Nelson, Vote Em Out. Next, we'll hear from Pedro Hernandez of Fair Vote, who will talk about better ways to that we can adopt to do precisely that. Here in the studio with me is Pedro Hernandez, Deputy Director of Fair Vote California. We'll be talking about the significance of the 2018 midterms, which are almost upon us. How do we protect our votes during this historically crucial election? We'll also talk about ranked choice voting, which has been adopted by several Bay Area cities for local races. Ranked choice voting is a type of voting system that allows for more varied voices to be heard and eliminates the spoiler dilemma that pops up when independent or third-party candidates enter a race. And, of course, we'll explore ways that voters can get involved to make our elections work more fairly. Welcome to Full Circle, Pedro. Let's touch on the significance of November 6th. What do you feel is at stake in the midterms? Every midterm election cycle is certainly a reflection of where things are headed in our country. Voters will go to the polls and will be able to elect or re-elect their congressional members. For us, for Fair Vote, we're watching these midterm elections and really looking at the way that congressional seats are laid out in our political geography in the country. The United States uses single-member districts to elect their congressional members, and what that usually means is that someone draws those lines. When you draw those lines, oftentimes it's the state legislature in these particular states. California uses an independent redistricting commission. Other states don't. So what you see in some of these states are district lines that tend to favor political parties. When that happens, you essentially create safe seats for some of these representatives that are not competitive. And when they're not competitive, that means that those candidates don't need to appeal to a broader electorate in order to get elected. And I think that is one of the things that is propelling the kind of polarization that we're seeing in our country. So, you know, some of the things that we're looking at are how do we make it harder to gerrymander districts or how do we create more electoral opportunities for the diverse electorate that we do have in our country? You know, there are third parties in our country and don't necessarily have an opportunity to get elected because essentially single member districts tend to favor two political factions and the largest 
vote-getter of those two ends up getting that particular seat. So one of the proposals that Fair Vote has been advancing is called the Fair Representation Act. And what it does is it would create larger geographical districts that would elect three or five and also add proportional representation to it. So you wouldn't necessarily need to have the most amount of votes to get elected. You would need a proportion of those votes. So when you're electing three, you would only need 25% of the vote to get elected. And with that, you actually create incentive for candidates to appeal to a larger constituents, and that could lead to less polarization. And having more members per district means that a larger segment of the population would be truly represented. Right. The Fair Representation Act that has been introduced by Don Breyer and co-sponsored by Ro Khanna would do three things. It would create larger geographical districts that would be less susceptible to gerrymandering. You would use ranked choice voting to elect them, and then you would employ independent redistricting commissions to draw those lines. And by doing those things, you would actually create more electoral opportunities for more diverse views. So when you're electing five representatives to one of these multi-member districts, you would only need one-sixth of the vote in order to get elected. So maybe in the future, if this is employed, you would see urban Republicans get elected. You would see rural Democrats get elected. And because essentially you would have candidates seeking to be the first choice of voters and also seeking to be the second choice of voters to different voter bases, you would actually see more civility, which is actually something that we've seen in many of the local elections that already use ranked choice voting, is that you see voters report that they see less negativity and more civil campaigns. Do you see any particular concerns as far as dirty tricks that California voters need to look for? Well, certainly there's several changes in California. And actually, California does a pretty good job. Just last June, it enacted the Conditional Voter Registration Program, which is from now on, even if voters miss the October 22nd deadline they just passed, voters can still go to their vote center or to their local county office or registrar of voters and register and vote on the same day and do that during early voting as well. And their votes are counted just like somebody who's already registered? Well, they would be counted conditionally, right? So it's conditional voter registration. You know, the Secretary of State and the local registrar office would need to make sure that they hadn't voted in other elections as well. So yeah, definitely would be conditional voter and it would be like casting a provisional ballot. One of the things that was a significant change in California that got rolled out in June was that There were several counties that now have the Voter Choice Act. What that does is it gives voters in those counties, and there are a number of counties that have been using it. And if you're in one of these counties, you would be subject to the Voter Choice Act, which includes Napa and Nevada, Madera, Sacramento, or San Mateo County. Voters in this county would be going to vote centers to cast their ballots. Every voter in that jurisdiction would receive a vote-by-mail ballot. People should be checking right now to see if they have received their ballot in these counties. And if you haven't, you should call your local county office. Which counties again? The counties are Napa, Nevada County, Madera, Sacramento, San Mateo. Okay, very good. Are there other issues with registration that we see in California? I know we don't have that exact match monstrosity that Georgia has, but are there other little issues? Well, some of the issues that we've seen play out in this electoral cycle, there were some hiccups regarding DMV registration. There's an, you know, an opt-out system now with the DMV where if you get a license or you renew your license, you're automatically registered to vote. Some of this hasn't been happening for certain voters, so it's really important for them to 
check their voting status and make sure that they're actually registered to vote. And you can do that through the Secretary of State's website. I think you can also do that through vote.org. Is that correct? Well, I think the vote.org would send you to your Secretary of State's website. We are speaking with Pedro Hernandez, who is the Deputy Director of AirVote California. This is Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. Pedro, please tell us a bit about FairVote California, and you've already mentioned some of the campaigns you're working on. I've been Deputy Director of FairVote California since the project started back in August 2016. We are a project of FairVote National Electoral Reform Organization that has been advancing electoral reforms like ranked choice voting for over 25 years. A lot of the work that I've been doing here locally has been educating voters on ranked choice voting since it is being utilized in four Bay Area cities to elect local offices. Some of the other things that we've been working on is looking to expand ranked choice voting, both locally through proportional representation for cities and to create more electoral opportunities for communities that are pretty diverse and that, you know, it would be hard to create districts for some of these jurisdictions. We're looking at places where those kinds of dynamics are at play, where minority groups would be actually better suited to elect under a ranked choice voting system. Some of the other things that we'd like to see happen looking in the future, we'd like to get ranked choice voting be used for all California cities. So one of the things that we're working on is in the future is we are hoping to see the next governor sign a bill that would actually allow a local option for all California cities, since right now it's only charter cities that can do that. So the redistricting system that you talked about earlier is an example of proportional representation, correct? Yes, exactly. Could you tell us a little more about proportional representation and then ranked choice voting? So proportional representation, or fair vote likes to call it fair representation. Fair representation is the idea that every vote should count to the extent possible. So that means giving voters a ranked ballot. So if their first choice can't win, then their second choice can count and so on. And the idea with proportional representation is that it only works when you're electing more than one candidate, because when you're only electing one candidate, you're in the world of single-member elections, and that's not proportional. You would elect several, and what it does under ranked choice voting, as you've seen in many barrier races, is that the threshold to win under a ranked choice voting election, for one, is 50% plus one. When you're electing two, it actually goes down to 33.3% plus one, and the more you elect, the lower that threshold to win goes under ranked choice voting. And this is not a new concept. Uh, Ranked choice voting has been used in American elections for 100 years, but we We haven't really seen it be used in the last half century outside of Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a parks board in Minneapolis. But the idea isn't too far off from what we currently do in many California cities, which is elect several representatives at once. However, with those elections that we have in California, which are at-large elections that are winner-take-all, is that the largest segment of voters, even if they're not the majority, would capture 100% of the representation. Even if there is a group of voters that makes up 35% of the vote under some of these elections, they can't get anyone elected. So using proportional representation or using a fair representation election method would actually allow more voters to be heard at the ballot. Is ranked choice voting ever used in single seat elections? 
If so, how does that work? Well, the idea of fair representation is to allow the idea of multi-member representation. There is ranked choice voting being used across the country. Here locally, there are four cities that use ranked choice voting to elect single-seat offices. Those include San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, and San Leandro. Across the country, actually, the state of Maine adopted ranked choice voting statewide, and it's now going to be using it to elect its governor and congressional seats, which is very exciting for us. Also, Santa Fe, New Mexico, used ranked choice voting to elect its mayor earlier this year with great success. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul are other cities that use ranked choice voting, and ranked choice voting is actually used for overseas voters in different states to be able to weigh in on their primary and general election. But essentially what ranked choice voting for single seat does is it eliminates the need for a two-round election. You can accomplish a 50% plus one election when turnout is highest without having to ask voters to come back for a second election. And what we've seen in the Bay Area cities that use ranked choice voting is that voters actually use their rankings with great proficiency. In the June mayoral election in San Francisco, we saw 86% of voters use two or three different rankings on their ballots. More than nine in 10 voters had a final say in that election. There's some people who think that ranked choice voting is confusing. I would point those people to the statement of voter files and look at the voter error rate that happens in the top two primary. In San Francisco, we saw six times as many ballot errors coming out of the race for governor from San Francisco voters than in the ranked choice voting contest. So voters get it. It's not that difficult to indicate your first, second, and third choice. What voters should know is that having a second or third choice actually doesn't hurt your first choice candidate. So make sure to rank a different candidate. You know, marking the same candidate three times doesn't help that candidate because your vote would only count once for that candidate. So if there are three acceptable candidates that you like, then really you should rank them all. So how can people act to bring ranked choice voting to their communities to bring about more varied seating? Well, if you're looking to try to bring electoral reform locally, you can get in touch with Fair Vote and Fair Vote California. We're actually holding an activist summit in December, on December 8th through the 9th, for activists across California to learn more and learn how to actually conduct a campaign to bring about electoral reform to their cities. And you can find information for that at fairvoteca.org and fairvote.org. And those links will be posted on the website kpfaapprentice.org shortly after the show. What kind of activism can people expect when they plug into Fairvote? Well, if you want to bring change locally, you have to act locally, right? If you want to change the way in which we elect our congressional members, our governors, well, we have to act locally as well and change the way we elect our local representatives. And for every city, it might be a little bit different. So knowing the way your city council works is something that we can help these activists with and learning to navigate the kind of laws and rules and regulations that exist out there is something that we specialize in. And once again, the summit is being held in December. Yes. So we're calling it the West Coast Activist Summit for Fair Vote. It's happening December 8th and 9th in Oakland. It's going to be a two-day, all-day event. One peculiarity in California is our top two primary, where top two in any party go on to the general election. How do you feel this is affecting voters and democracy in California? Well, the top two primary was first introduced as a way to create moderation in state government. What is actually done is created a 
condition or an environment where really what matters most is more the number of candidates that are running for that particular seat. We found ourselves back in June in a situation where too many candidates from the Democratic Party were running for office. You had as many as five candidates running for a seat. If voters spread their support too thin among all the candidates, you could have had a situation where the only two top vote-getters would have been the Republican Party. And this happens for the Republican Party as well, where they get locked out of the general election entirely. So one way that we think you can actually solve the possibility of parties being shut out of the general election is to introduce ranked choice voting. That was the voice of Pedro Hernandez. Pedro is the Deputy Director of Fair Vote California. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM, KPFA Public Radio. I'm Mari Nakagawa with Sharon Peterson. So if you're not registered to vote, please listen to Pedro. You can now register on Election Day, November 6th. You'll be given a provisional ballot to prevent multiple, to prevent multiple votes. California's track record is pretty good with this, so please, vote however you can. And time for more firing up. We need long-term, permanent, community-based solutions. Oakland is in a crisis. We're, we're hurting, we're bleeding. Um, we need to keep the pressure on. That's how wounds heal. Mm. We can't let corporates take take advantage of us. Remove bandage after a couple of days to promote healing. If a wound is bleeding severely, stop the bleeding. Apply steady, firm, and direct pressure. Clean, protect, then follow up. Apply pressure to the side of the wound. Apply pressure to the side of the wound. Apply pressure. Apply pressure to the side of the wound. 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 Ap
That was Pressure by Bonfire Makers. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Sharon Peterson with... Mari Nakagawa. If you've glanced at your ballot yet, and I really hope that you have, you've probably noticed a lot of this year's initiatives have to do with housing. In California, one-third of all propositions are about housing. And here in the Bay, the fight is spilling into just about every race for office. And I think often in these election periods, um, we get really saturated in horse race drama and big money interests skew the conversation to fit their agenda. So tonight, we want to bring you the voices of real people. The following testimonies were collected by the Bonfire Makers, an Oakland-based theater collective that creates political performance. The testimonies are anonymous, the names have been changed, and each was read by an attendee of an event called Artists for Rent Control. The first story is from a person with the pseudonym Damon. Their profile, executive director of a youth development nonprofit, 40-something, black, East Oakland homeowner. You walk into any public school and you will eventually go into a class where the kids there have created a collage or poems or short stories and they're on the wall discussing displacement and gentrification. Why is every school in Oakland doing this? Because the kids are traumatized. They see it happening in macro and micro ways, and they don't understand it. And the teachers are forced to address it. I had this one student who, you know, young father, his mother of his child was, was struggling with drugs. He's a young father, really trying to do a great job, taking care of his daughter, and he's like trying to hold his family down. He ended up getting pushed out of his apartment and he had to move his daughter and her mom to Sacramento and he couldn't be around to supervise and be there for his mother, the mother of his child, who, you know, fell in the wrong crowd and ended up getting strung out on drugs. You know what I mean? Which, of course, affects his daughter. This kid's like, you know, he's got a job. He's going to school. He's taking care of his daughter. I mean, he would stay at 5 o'clock in the morning when she's at her mom's house and he would sleep literally outside of the house just so he could be up in the morning to take his daughter to school. He's amazing. And he couldn't, you know, afford to live here anymore. And it, you know, destroyed his family. You know what I mean? So it's like you. People don't hear those kind of stories, man. They just, conversations about gentrification, displacement, people don't hear those kind of stories. Gail, 60, white, Berkeley landlord, union electrician, almost retired. It used to be a single family home and at some point got divided into four units. The mortgage is paid off. I own it now and I keep the rents very, very low because I still remember being a tenant. I never raised the rents because I remember how afraid I used to be about a rent raise. Could I afford it? I don't have an organized religion, but I believe that the reason we're in the world is to try to do good and try to help other people. And that's a little bitty thing I can do. Given that, I don't want to see rent control only because I hate being told what to do. I hate it. 
I know it's super contradictory because my rents are already down here, but don't tell me what they can be. And I can also understand that I'm not in the majority of people. So I have great ambivalence, as you can see. Daniel, 40s, Berkeley landlord, small business owner, artist, white. I come from a family of landlords. My grandfather made all his money in real estate, not in the stock market. He was born in the Depression, and the idea of putting something into a market like that felt stupid to him. And he felt like land is the one thing they're not making more of. I worked for my family for some money to buy one property, and as soon as that property had equity in it, I took out that equity to buy another property. The truth is, I meet all these people, and they're going to live in something that I like cried and sweat and bled over, so I'm really interested in having people live there that this is going to make a difference in their lives. And yes, I want to try to get a little bit more because I still have to pay the bank, but I've never really leveraged when I've had 20 people come in to get a unit, you know? I could just kill on this right now and just charge the max. I haven't even thought about Costa Hawkins. They tell me some figure we can raise our rent by each year, and sometimes I do that and sometimes I don't. It just depends on, you know, the moment you raise the rent, the more the tenant's going to call me up, fix this, fix that. You keep it at a certain level and they figure I'm not going to bother him. <coughs> He's not bothering me and I'm not going to bother him. I feel like trying to blame the mom and pop landlords for the problem of high rents is missing the point, which is that cities have been letting the people who don't want their view of the Golden Gate Bridge to be blurred, so they don't let them build anything or anything significant on the land they've got. Can't build more than three stories. I mean, who's going to do that? We have a serious issue. Protecting the property value of people who already own it and screws over anyone else who's trying to live here. Housing is a subject that's very significant to me. Not as a landlord, really, but as someone who is really invested in this area where the 24-year-old me decided to live here and start their artist collectives. Kaya and Jared, 30s. Vietnamese Filipino woman. <laughs> and white man, East Lake Merritt homeowners. Bay transplants. <laughs> we were very privileged to have some money saved, some intergenerational wealth. We were able to buy our house after we had been renting it for three years when we got put, when it got put on the market. We bought here partially because we loved the community, our neighbors. We wanted our kids to grow up in a diverse area where they could see other kids who look like them and who look different from them. We have two kiddos now, a son and a daughter, or, well, who knows what gender they'll grow up to identify as, but yeah. And so in the last six years, almost all of our neighbors that we knew as renters aren't there anymore. They're moving further and further east, like to the Diamond, then East Oakland, then like out to Antioch, Stockton, Tracy. My friend has huge luxury condo being built next to her house. We don't, that hasn't happened yet. It's still a neighborhood, but it's a different neighborhood. Like our kids are now some of the only brown kids on the street, and that's a loss for them and for the families who had to move. It's a loss of community and it doesn't feel right. We don't wanna feel secure as our neighbors are pushed out. It's like you wouldn't enjoy a meal if only you were served this beautiful plate and all of your friends also at the dinner or even just people you didn't know but whom you were sitting at a table with were all there without hardly any food. You'd wanna share your food, right? 
You'd hope that everyone could have a full plate so you could all enjoy your meal together without everyone feeling stressed and uneven. Responding to a question. Prop 10? No, I haven't heard of it. Personal testimonies on housing from our Bay Area neighbors gathered by the theater collective, The Bonfire Makers. This is Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM, and we've been talking about the impact of the housing crisis in this year's election. In just a few days, we'll be voting on initiatives that could have real impact on the daily lives of our neighbors, especially neighbors living in the most precarious housing situations. Next up, we speak with community members who are taking direct action to improve housing for our most vulnerable communities. Joining us in studio are Sunita Walker and Nick Houston of the Village in Oakland and the East Oakland Collective. Welcome to Full Circle. Thank you. Thank you. So last Saturday, last Saturday in deep East Oakland on Chochenyo Ohlone land, your organizations, a coalition of housed and unhoused East Bay residents occupied a city-owned plot of land at Eads and Elmhurst. You're declaring it the Housing and Dignity Village. Um, Sunita, can you tell us um, about Saturday's action? Well, we, we're creating a space for the community, for the unhoused, um, the unsheltered, and people who need resources within the community, specifically for black and brown women and children. So we're, we, have, we have this public land that we're going to put to use um, for these people, and we're preparing it for them, essentially. Mm -hmm. And what resources do you have at the camp? Nick, maybe you could jump on this one. Sure. Uh, right now we have uh, immediate and basic need uh, resources. Uh, if anybody wants to come get something to eat, they can. Uh, if anybody needs any type of hygiene products, they can come get those also. We have blankets. Uh, we're going to have Wi-Fi there available for anybody in the community. Um, we're going to start offering more resources. But uh, one thing we want to make sure is that the community as a whole, not just the unhoused, come and take advantage of the resources. And so you all are doing this as a response in many ways to a lack of action by the city and other organizations that really it's their job in many ways to do this. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, so you occupied this land, right? It's not necessarily designated for your use? Uh, according to the city, it is designated for future affordable housing, whatever that means. Uh, but it's been vacant for about two decades. So this, is, this isn't the only plot of land that's been vacant for that amount of time in our city. Uh, and we are trying to figure out why have these empty plots when we have people that need actual refuge, which is a little strange. Uh, so we have the mind that this is a community that actually needs a place of refuge. So why not create that for them? Mm -hmm. It was interesting. We recently um, on KPFA on Upfront, another uh, show, they had a debate about Measure W, which mm. would create the vac vacancy taxes for um, properties that were unoccupied for 50 days or more. Mm -hmm. And um, this is an argument for or against, but interestingly, the, the con argument, the against argument argued that, you know, the city has all this public land and they're mm -hmm. not going to be um, taxed on any of it. They're not going to have to live up to their own rules. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so this isn't the first village, right? In January of last year, I think you had your first one open at Marcus Garvey. Can you tell us a little about that one? 
Actually, that would be uh, Nita. She's not here. Uh-huh. Uh, Sunita and I are from the East Oakland Collective. Okay. So, but I, that timeline does sound right. Mm-hmm. That sounds correct. Mm-hmm. And um, where does the East Oakland Collective come in? So I know the, uh, mm-hmm. the, there's the village in Oakland, mm-hmm. and you have created a coalition with them. Yes. Uh, that is our sister org, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nita has done an awesome job of showing us a lot of how to do the work around public lands and servicing the unsheltered. She's been doing it for quite some time. And uh, we really latched on to her to learn a lot of the stuff that we've been doing from her uh, that happened about two years ago. And uh, she's like a, a big sister to us. Like, whatever we we think about some type of direct action along these lines, she's the person that gives us direction. So. And that's Anita Diasis, yes. um, also known as Anita B, correct? Nita, yeah. And, <laughs> um, and that was born, um, that organization, The Village, was mm-hmm. born out of Feed the People, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, um, I guess this, this question would be more um, focused towards Anita, but I'm wondering if you could respond. The Village's website states that gentrification is the cause of the housing crisis, mm-hmm. and uh, which in turn has caused the home the homelessness state of emergency, and the city is at fault for both. Only permanent, no income slash low income homes for all will solve both emi- epidemics. I'm wondering if you could respond to that or expand on that. I mean, that's pretty much why we're doing all of this as the East Oakland Collective, which that's really what I could speak to. You know, we're involved with civic engagement and leadership and then the homeless services and solutions as well as economic empowerment. So when you have all those things in play, you know, it will cut down on all of the unhoused and unsheltered people when you provide the resources that allow them to come out of this crisis condition. So that's how we're kind of aligned with the village as well, because their focus is somewhat the same. Mm-hmm. So that's how we're able to work together to kind of eradicate mm-hmm. this in Oakland. Can you give us a brief description of the East Oakland Collective? Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's <laughs> it in a nutshell. Yeah. Those are the those are the three main things we focus on is yeah. economic empowerment so the homelessness will decrease tremendously and then what we're doing in the deep east with the housing and dignity village is um the civic engagement and leadership part which that's mainly what what nick is involved in is getting he he does a lot of the footwork as far as getting the community involved because at the end of the day these people they're already there but it's kind of like reintroducing them into society as um so everyone can embrace them so they're not looked at as outcasts because they they live there now Mm -hmm. so this is how everyone can work together Mm -hmm. and can you tell us um these villages how they differ from encampments um the housing and dignity village is uh i don't want people to think of um encampment or camps as a bad word um People hear encampment or camp and they think tent cities or they think the most negative stereotypes about the unhoused, drugs and crime and stuff like that. What they don't realize is a lot of our unhoused are students. A lot of our unhoused actually have jobs. Uh, A lot of our unhoused are people that they see every day that they may not know go home to a tent or home to a car. 
Um, so what the Housing and Dignity Village is and how it differs from a regular camp is we want to make sure that, one, the community around the Housing and Dignity Village understands that even if you're housed, you can come too. Um, this is a place for the actual community. And what we want is the community to come out and actually not only come for resources, but to engage about what that plot of land is going to look like in the future. I think a lot of the community doesn't understand that, one, that is a public land site. So if we want to get technical about it, taxpayers should be able to dictate what happens on that plot of land. People that live around that plot of land are actual taxpayers. So if you do two and two, they should be there being really involved on what's built there. Mm-hmm. That normally doesn't happen with the city. They mm-hmm. build whatever they want, whenever they want. And part of setting up this village is, one, letting the community know that, hey, you can dictate what goes on here. Like, you have the power to do that. And if people mobilize, if we can get the entire community to understand that, mobilize and go to the city with demands, say, hey, we want this here. We don't want that parking lot you were going to build here. We want affordable housing that's actually real affordable housing, mm-hmm. not you have to make 65000 to be considered. Like, I don't know what kind of affordable housing that is, but <laughs> we all know what that is. Uh, but we can go on and on about that. But this village differs because this is for the housed also. Mm-hmm. And this is the start of a larger discussion and a larger push to mobilize. And where, can you remind our listeners exactly where this is and what they can bring, what they can offer? Uh, it is at the corner of South Elmhurst and Eads in the Brookfield uh, Village area of East Oakland. It's the deep for us, uh, born and raised in the deep myself. Uh, right now, uh, we need blankets. Uh, we need... I think we still need food. Sanita's yes. probably the person to give you the real list. But. Yes, we've we've had a lot of people volunteer. Like, I've been getting messages all day. What can we do to help out? Um, any type of donations, whether they're monetary uh, or food, or we, we have a garden community there, too. So anyone who's into that kind of thing, like, volunteer. Do as much as you can through because people are there. We'll be there all day, all night, and um, getting it ready. So, anything that people can think of, you know, they can reach out to the East Oakland Collective online or the village for Feed the People and access us that way. And we can direct them to who's ever leading in those particular areas that they want to contribute to. So you all are making a community garden on on site in the village. Yes. yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, so we're speaking with Sanita Walker and Nick Houston of the Village in Oakland and the East Oakland Collective. They're currently occupying a city-owned public plot of land at Eads and Elmhurst in deep East Oakland, providing immediate relief for our curbside communities. Um, in January of this year, your, the two organizations, along with Love and Justice in the Streets, co-hosted a visit from the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, mm-hmm. Leilani Farha. Mm-hmm. She visited um, Ho- Oakland's homeless encampments as a part of her research on human rights abuses mm-hmm. committed against homeless folks around the world. Can you tell us about that experience and her observations? Yeah, it was a, a very interesting day. Uh, we... We got around to touring a 
about, I would say, five camps, maybe. Um, and some of what we see on a daily basis, just out doing work, uh, when the UN actually saw it, they were amazed that this exists in the middle of a city like Oakland, California. Um, even got to, they even got to see some of the negative response from community. We had an altercation when we visited the camp on Wood Street. Uh, they got to see firsthand what some of the community that opposes any type of curbside community, uh, what that reaction looks like. Uh, but they were really shocked that, that this uh, exists here. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they had an idea or a clue, but to actually see it. Uh, I, re- I could actually remember looking at their faces like mm-hmm. they couldn't believe it. But, mm-hmm. you know, we see this every day. So normalized. And I think, was it, it was two California cities, it was Oakland and I think either San Francisco or Los Angeles that made it on the UN's list mm-hmm. of these cities that have serious human rights abuses, mm-hmm. cruelty, they said, against yes. their homeless population. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we... Yesterday, also, we got news that there was another fire. Um, we were talking about that earlier at East 12th and 23rd, which is the site of another um, village. What's the latest on that? And what are your needs? Um, I, the last update I saw, uh, I know that there were some pet casualties, uh, which is always horrible. Um, pets are family. Um, I think as far as the needs, I know a lot of... Uh, the affected uh, residents there are starting over from scratch. Mm-hmm. Some of them lost everything. So you can imagine that need is everything mm-hmm. uh, from clothes to regular hygiene products to monetary donations. Uh, I like to stress monetary donations because people can buy their own needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't ha- get any word of any fatalities. Uh, I'm hoping that there are no fatalities, but that, the last the last I heard, it was just uh, pet casualties. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything else either of you want to add? We're winding down a little. Just donate, mm-hmm. help out, um, be a part of your community so that by us all working together, we can end homelessness as much as possible because it's not that it can't happen, it's that people have to buy into it and realize it can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. It's not get the stereotypes out of our head as to why it is this way and realize here in California, anybody can become homeless and unhoused. So we want to change the narrative of that by doing this. We've been speaking with Sunita Walker and Nick Houston of the Village in Oakland and the East Oakland Collective. Um, If you'd like to learn more about their organizations, we'll include links in our show notes. We're near the end of this week's Full Circle. Please remember, vote by November 6th. Do you have to cast a provisional ballot? Do it. It's much better than sitting this one out. Vote like it's your last chance to vote. Because these days you never know. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. You've been listening to Full Circle on KPFA. You can find us and all of our shows archived at kpfaapprentice.org. Tune in next week for a musical journey guided by our very own Mm. DJ, Stevie G. Our executive producer is Ms. M. 
Our technical director is Free Will and Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Thanks, Kenny G on the board, and to Stevie G, our assistant. G! We've been your hosts. Mara Nakagawa. And Sharon Peterson. Thank you so much for joining us on Full Circle. Now, stay tuned for La Onda Bahita. Thank you.